Welcome to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas. We are doing another live session, this one with Alex Hillman. And as usual, I'm going to be lazy and let Alex do the talking to introduce himself, but it also in part because he does lots and lots of things. And I want him to prioritize what uh, he wants to highlight here. So Alex, welcome to the show. Good to be back, Dave. It's always good to see you and spend some time with you. Yeah, so a, a little bit about me. I wear a lot of hats. It is tough to introduce me, so it's also tough to introduce myself. I spend my time in sort of two different worlds. One of them is a co-working community called Indie Hall that actually Dave and I have known each other since the very first day that I told people that weren't my closest friends about my desire to bring people together, uh, fellow creatives and entrepreneurially minded folks. And almost 15 years later, Dave and I are still friends and that community is still somehow growing and thriving in spite of a big part of our history being gathering in person in a co-working space. So it's a long history of community building, gathering people and using that both to further my own skills and careers. Like part of the reason I wanted to gather people is because I, when I went out on my own as a freelancer, I missed having other coworkers to bounce ideas off of, be inspired by, learn from. Going out on your own, you lose a lot of that unless you have a network of people to turn to. And so Indie Hall was sort of my solution to that. So it fixed that for me and also kind of created that opportunity for other people in the community. But the other thing it did is it gave me a vantage point to watch other people conduct business for better and for worse. And I've watched a lot of people grow and thrive and do truly inspiring things. And I've also watched people face challenges and struggles, sometimes by their own hand, sometimes by the, the nature of the situation. But that vantage point and, and at some scale, along with just like my general interest in business and starting businesses, but doing it in a way where it was more about service, I think more like tr traditional business values, perhaps, where it wasn't about creating something big. It wasn't about creating something that was a rocket ship at scale. It was about taking the skills and, and tools that I have and using them to help other individuals and businesses achieve their goals. Getting to watch the broader landscape of business gave me a clearer picture of what I wanted and what I didn't want. And that a lot of people who wanted the same things as I did, didn't see how to get there. And so that takes me to the other world where I spend my time in. Yes, we're still in the intro, where um, <laughs> my, my friend Amy Hoy and I teamed up to create a business that today is called Stacking the Bricks. That's a, a website, stackingthebricks.com. Lots of articles, a podcast, videos, video series, workshops, books, eBooks, now a paperback book. Um, that is, all, all of our stuff is really geared towards the creative person who wants to build a business around the fact that they own the means of production, right? When you are creative, you own the means of production and every bit of that that you give up to somebody else for them to make money on, you lose a number of things, not the least of which is control as well as capital. So those two worlds overlap in some really interesting, sometimes unusual, sometimes weird and unpredictable ways. Most recently, uh, I published a book called The Tiny MBA that in 100 very, very short lesson, one lesson per page kind of breakdowns, covers a lot of that stuff, stuff that I've seen over the years, stuff that I've seen succeed and fail, stuff that I've seen turn into struggle, stuff that's avoidable, all those kinds of things. So that's a long introduction. I, I got to come up with like a one or two sentence version at some, <laughs> at some point, but look, it's a podcast. I can talk as long as I want and exactly. sleep until stop. <laughs> um, no, I have a hard stop at one. So we got to know. Um, so uh, I think one of the things that your book and my book have in common, and our books, by the way, came out literally one day apart. <laughs> Twins. Uh, yeah. So one of the things that they have in common is they're all about questioning assumptions. And, and we've had this discussion about how our books are sort of like this manifestation of conversations both of us have been having for literally 15 years. And one of the conversations I know that, you know, one, one of the things I've taken away from a lot of our conversations is that there are many business assumptions that we don't realize are assumptions. We think, oh, this is how you do business. It's written in stone. It's inherited wisdom. That's just how you do it. And one of the things I've always found interesting is how you're able to point out, well, no, actually, that's a choice. You made a choice to raise money that way. You made a choice to make your money off of this as opposed to that. So I, I, in writing the book, 
like what are what do you think are some of the common assumptions people trying to get into business make that they don't even realize are assumptions? There's a couple that come to mind very quickly. The the first one is where money comes from. <laughs> and a big part of that is is because we're living in, you know, the the 21st century where there's a cultural narrative that the first step in business is to have a idea and then go sell that idea to an investor. And that is a way, but in all of history of all of business, that is the vast minority of the ways that businesses are created. And that's even the vast minority of the way the businesses are created today. It's just the dominant narrative. And so What's interesting to me is the fact that not only is that the dominant narrative, but it also shapes the kinds of business that people believe they can or should create, especially with their first business. People leave a full-time job and then go into some venture-funded rocket ship. You, you just skipped a whole bunch of steps. It's like going from middle school to like fourth year med school. Like you didn't even do organic chemistry. You are going to be lost. And if you succeed, it will be because you got very, very lucky. And that's where survivorship bias and things like that start kicking in. So I don't know. That's a first point. Do we want to dig deeper into that before that's, we yeah. pick on any of the other ones? Yeah, totally right. Because I think that's one of the key ones, right? I mean, you talk about the dominant narrative. I feel like the dominant narrative drives a lot of those assumptions. You mentioned survivorship yeah. bias, right? Just to tell a, a, a quick story about that. And then I want to talk about entreporn. Um, <laughs> so I, I talk about this in the book. One of the stories I tell is about Abram Wald, who was a Austrian Jew in 1930s, who fortunately made it out of Austria um, in time and uh, came over to the States and was asked to help with the war effort. And one of the things they wanted him to do was look at a bunch of airplanes that had been shot up and they wanted to figure out how should we arm these planes better, right, um, as we're making new ones uh, so they don't get shot down so much. And he was in a room full of scientists, and most of the scientists were like, oh, well, you see where all the bullet holes are? You got to put more armament there. And he said, that is exactly where you shouldn't put more, more armament. You need to put it in all the places. You don't see the bullet holes because what he realized was they were looking at the planes that made it back. He was worried about the planes that got shot up so bad they never came back. They were looking at the survivors, what were essentially success stories. And he was like, no, you need to be about the people who lost, right? And I feel like I think about that a lot in terms of entrepreneurship because you're right. There's a handful of companies that made a big swing and made a whole lot of money for their investors. And, like, and now we celebrate them and we celebrate their wealth. And we do not talk about the millions of companies that failed. We don't talk about the millions of companies that succeeded without ever becoming you know, the size of Google. Um, and, and this term that, that I heard you mention a while ago, entreporn, I want you to unpack that a little bit too, <laughs> but that, that, so yes, let's stay with survivorship bias for a minute. Yeah. I think it's a really, really interesting and, and really pervasive problem in, in a lot of business. Um, and the fact that business is this also like kind of public sport. In, in modern times where people spend a lot of time reading about what other businesses are doing and you, you sort of become, it's sort of like armchair quarterbacking, right? It's like you think that by watching Sunday football every weekend that you could be a professional football player. And most people who watch football every Sunday don't actually think that, but in business, a lot of people do, which is scary. Um, Entreporn. Entreporn is a term that was coined by my business partner I mentioned before, Amy Hoy, for a particular category of boosterism, I think is a good way to describe it in, in media around entrepreneurial and business stories. And actually, I'm going to pull up the, uh, she created a flow chart uh, uh, that sort of helps you identify what the elements of this are. And a big part of this is also like when you're reading startup media or business media, I think it's important to question like, why does this media exist? What is the goal here? And in a world where content marketing is a major form of marketing, that's not a bad thing. You, I think there's like maybe a media literacy component to this is people need to stop and question who is the author of this piece? Who is this piece intended to reach? Is that me? And what, in outcome is it intended to influence? 
And entreporn is a category that is intended to influence an aspiring entrepreneur to believe that a certain category of entrepreneurship is the only path. And I think that's a key, that it's the only path. And it comes back to what you said before about choice, right? I don't care which path you choose, so long as you know that there are multiple paths and that you don't believe that the dominant path is, or I should say the apparent dominant path is necessarily the best one. So Amy's flowchart is kind of a joke. And actually, I'll put the link in the chat for folks who want to check it out. You know, it opens with, is it a tale of wild or unlikely overnight success? If yes, it's entreporn. If no, to the next question. The next question, does it glorify overwork, sacrificing sleep, sleep, life, health, and family? If no, we can move on. If yes, it's entreporn. And then we have things like, and this is where things get really, really, because what we're talking about now so far is like, Entrepreneur Magazine and whatever's on the front page of the newspaper, right? Whatever's viral in the, the news sphere. But then we start getting into the advice category. And the advice category is things like, does it offer a simplistic recipe for success? If you just do this one thing, entreporn. If it claims that you must do or have or think or be a certain thing or you'll never, never succeed, it's, it's entreporn. If it seems designed to make you feel bad about where you are or what you want in the category of business and entrepreneurship, it's entreporn. So the, the, the term entreporn is a bit of a callback to pornography, which by the way, I don't have a problem with, but pornography is designed to do a thing. Pornography has a job. It's meant to manipulate our feelings. And in some cases that's, that's for good. And if we look at this particular category of media, it's designed to do the same thing. It's designed to manipulate our feelings. In some cases, to have us enter into a momentary fantasy and feel a certain way about a thing, which is fine, so long as you know it's a fantasy. Yeah, and I think that what I keep coming back to there is, is problematic is the glorification of wealth part of it, right? Like, when do we consider a business a success? When it makes money. Like if you, it's to the point where, and our, our, our association of business with money, which again is a choice, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Is so strong that if you put a briefcase in a room where you're having a meeting, people will act more competitively than if it were a backpack. Like it is primal how much we associate the idea of business with the idea of money. And I think that is going back to that dominant narrative because that's the thing we, we celebrate about business but the thing is, that's not the only thing, <laughs> like that's not our only option. Um, right. And I think that's, that's, you know, like as we, as, as we're teeing up the conversation of what does ethical capitalism look like, that feels like a key component to me. <laughs> I think you're right. And again, I think, I mean, money is such a, a challenging thing to talk about because there's actually, there's a lesson in the tiny MBA that is one of the most responded to lessons, pages, however you want to frame it, which is actually, it comes from a challenge, which is to, if I were to give you the assignment to using only the resources you have right now, make $5,000 in a week, how does that make you feel? Hmm. Not how would you do it? That's what people mm-hmm. expect. Mm-hmm. How does it make you feel? And that last line apparently throws people for a loop because they want to respond with, here's what I would do. And I'm sort of forcing them to interrogate, how does it make you feel? And different people feel a different way. And the reason I put that lesson in there is because I think people don't stop to think about how money and money-related challenges, let alone opportunities, because those are two sides of the same coin, make them feel. And a lot of it comes down to, Something that happened in your life, you know, your own psychological, like we, we've got baggage for everything. And whether it has something to do with, you know, your relationship with money growing up, your parents' relationship with money, the, the kinds of people who you spend most of your time around, all of those things. Uh, and I'm not saying that my relationship with money is perfect. I think everyone's got a, um, I think everyone has a relationship with money that needs work. I think that's the thing to recognize here. And I think maybe that's at the heart of this question about ethical capitalism is it's not money bad, business bad. It's is your relationship with money possibly undermining your goals and values as a person? 
and a contributor to society. If you can get those two things lined up with each other, I think you've got a shot. But that requires you doing some inside work before you do any outside work. And that's that's like a also probably a never quite done type mm-hmm. project. Like that's an, an always evolution. I, I wonder if, I don't know if this is actually a thing. Like, is there a ki- specific kind of therapist you can go to to work out your money issues? Because if there is, uh, I think, I, think I, I, I would like to talk to that kind of person about, about this area. But I've seen so many different variations of the things that drive people's success tying back to sometimes very warped and broken relationships with money and the things that cause people to struggle and, and or self-sabotage can be the exact same things. So it's not that the trauma, if we want to call it that, is inherently bad. It's sort of like, well, what do you do with it? Mm-hmm. Um, I saw Mike's note. They're called financial planners. I've, I've heard, I, I suppose that's true. <laughs> well, what I was actually going to say was that I feel like financial planners should either have the skill set or be paired with someone who has a skill set to sort of interrogate your psychological relationship to money. Because if you can't get over that, even if the financial planner has wisdom about you should invest your money this way or that way, yeah. you will never follow that wisdom if the underlying psychological issue driving your behavior on money isn't addressed. Um, I feel like it's, 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 it's a combination. Like you got to work the whole person. You know? yeah. yeah, totally. Well, and um, I mean, since, since we're already here, I feel comfortable. I haven't talked a lot about this publicly, but you know, one of my own personal motivators for business in business and why I choose to run the businesses that I do and the way that I run them is because I have experienced precariousness around money and it motivated me to learn how money and business works with the motivation of, I never want to go back there. Mm-hmm. And that can be expressed in a really dangerous and unhealthy way or a really positive, healthy way. And I think for me, the difference is, the difference is going to come down to, I think where power takes over because mm-hmm. like money and power are so tightly intercoupled mm-hmm. and I think about a quote from my other business partner, Jeff DeMassey, my business partner at Indie Hall, a quote he said years ago that so summed up a feeling that I had, but said it much clearer, which is the number one reason to gather power is to give it away. Yeah. And if your reason to gather power is to hold on to power and you have an unhealthy relationship with money, you and you become a politician. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you <laughs> If your reason to, is to gather power and give it away and you have an unhealthy relationship with money, it could drive you in the direction which I think expresses a lot of my career, which is to find ways to create sustainable businesses and then add a layer of make sure that somebody else who's going through this doesn't have to learn it the hard way like I did. What we're talking about is is responses to trauma, right? And I feel safe assuming that 99.9% of Americans' relationship with money is trauma-informed, right? whether that's too much money, too little money, like, and, and is related to power too. And it's worth noting the relationship between money and power is also a choice, right? Some societies decouple them more than others, right? <laughs> Some societies like ours depends on the day of the week, right? There's a yeah, time in yeah. American history where A&P tries to have a monopoly and the government shuts that shit down. And then Walmart does the same thing 80 years later and, gets a tax break, right? Like there's, there's, you know, um, there's some pendulum swing in there, but, but the point is that too is a choice. And I feel like, yeah, you gotta, you're going to have to, if you do not deal with that, it will express itself in unhealthy ways. (laughs) I'm, I'm so fascinated by the either ability or willingness to look at everything and go, there's a choice here. And I think the root of your book and your work is that, we have this psychological wiring to acknowledge that yes, everything is a choice, but we've chosen certain defaults and called them biases. And that helps us skip over the impossible number of choices to make. And so I think the question becomes is in any given area or discipline and this say we're talking about business, but this could be literally anything is how do you define the choices in your, in your work, in your day, in your life, in such a way that you have a, 
at the very least a reason or an excuse, but ideally a habit or a pattern of checking in with them and going, this worked before, this still makes sense? Things like that. And that is something that we are so bad to do, that we're so bad at that. Um, and then you couple that with like American individualism and the only lens we're able to check in with it in is like, well, is it cool for me? I don't give a crap about how it's affecting anybody else. As long <laughs> as I'm cool, it's cool. And so you have to add that other layer, layer of cognitive overhead of like, all right, I'm good. Am I hurting anybody else on purpose or by accident? Yes? No? Anybody? Bueller? Well, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, I feel like where all this is, is kind of heading, right? Um, it's something I've been thinking about a while. And, and, you know, while we're doing, you know, full disclosure and whatnot, like I've talked about this a little before, but, you know, last year, right when the book came out or right, right when I got the deal to make the book. So last year um, was also the same. It was August of 2019. It was the same month I got diagnosed with clinical depression. And I started doing antidepressants and therapy, which glad I did it then because try going through 2020 without that. Um, but, uh, but one of the, the key like insights very early on was moving from this self-punishing, am I a good, bad person? Every interaction has to be a trial on that to a values-based approach to decision-making, which is, okay, I've got a pretty good handle on what I think my values are. Am I, how close am I living to that? And that becomes the thing you check in on. And I feel like capitalism, the way we practice it is much more about the money is a way to make me feel good about myself. Money is a way for me to solve problems. Money is a way for me to get what I want right? It's very ego-driven and it's a way to make me look good versus here are a set of values. Some of those things money can help with, (laughs) some of them they cannot, but whatever I'm doing, I'm checking in with the values and not with the balance sheet, right? And I think that is a potential way to think about, you know, what does ethical capitalism look like? Just take the words. Is it ethical? Ethical is very much about, or at least one version of ethics is checking in with your values. Yeah. Uh, There's a a writer, his name is Umer Haq, uh, writes for Harvard Business Review, has written a number of books that I think, there well, there's two things about Umer that I think are interesting. One is his writing style is distinct and like borders on doomsday. Sometimes it's like straight doomsday, um, but it, it, it's with purpose and intent. It's to make a point. I think that's good. But the other thing is, is it's always about really what you're talking about, which is, I think it was in, I think the book that first expressed this idea was his book, Betterness, Mm. which was a very intentional rift on busyness as how we spell business. Busyness versus betterness, busy versus better. You get the play. Uh, And what he basically broke down was most of the way we look at economics through a business lens is pretty similar to a profit and loss statement, right? It's we're making money, we're losing money. But if we look at things from an ethical lens, from a betterness lens, it needs to look a bit more like a balance sheet. You can bury a lot of bodies in a P&L. But when you've got a, but when you've got a balance sheet, you're looking at, a, it's not all the detail, but it's a much more full spectrum detail where so you can see a part of the business is doing quite well, but another part of the business is hurting right? You have assets and there's growth over here, but we're also leaking out the bottom of the ship over here. And I think part of what the, the notion here is, is when he breaks, breaks down that balance sheet, he goes, we need a balance sheet for, for all, all kinds of capital, right? We need a balance sheet that considers if we're measuring growth in terms of financial capital and losses for that matter, we also need to have a line for social capital, knowledge capital, human, human capital, trust capital, so on and so forth. And if we, if we only look at the financial capital, our economy looks roughly like it looks today. Yeah. <laughs> but if we provide a balance sheet that not only encourages, but makes it so we can't ignore the losses in the other portions of the document, mm-hmm. so we have to calibrate the whole thing, well, now, now we're just talking about incentives, right? And that's where you can start applying design principles to an economic system that say, all right, if you got gains over here, but losses over here, but there's no incentive to address the losses, again, that's how we get 2020. But if you have put incentives in place to address the losses before they undo the good of the gains, mm-hmm. then 
more you not only stop the losses but you reframe the gains and who the gains are good for and things along those lines which i think is is i'm not saying any of this is easy but i think that they're the it's the kind of tools and the kind of thinking that allow individuals and businesses to do this work at all one of the interesting things about betterness and this book came out i don't know six or seven years ago Every case study that he includes in the book shows a business addressing one aspect of that balance sheet, so to speak, mm-hmm. that includes you know, not just financial capital, but social or knowledge. But he couldn't find a single business that addressed all of them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's notable. Like, it shows how, how difficult it is. Does that mean we shouldn't do it? Absolutely not. But I think the, the reality is, is we've got to kind of we're digging ourselves out of a pretty big hole here. Yeah. And so what I, what I don't know uh, is, you know, for, for an individual or a business who's trying to make up for the deficit that we're in, like, I guess the big question is like, where do we start? And the best answer I can come up with is like, fucking anywhere, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think it's anywhere and everywhere. Right? Cause I think this, I think the same thing is true with, you know, when I think about energy, right? It's sort of like this binary of oil, not oil. And it's just sort of like, okay, well, what's going to replace oil? And it's sort of like everything. There's about five different things. And depending on where you live, one of them is going to be way more profitable than the other. And by the way, we're getting to the point where it's like way cheaper to do solar than it's ever been before. Um, but I think that what's, what's interesting to me about that though, especially is the word balance, right? In balance sheet, because I feel like that's antithetical to American consumerism, right? Like Mm. no one wants you to stop spending money when you reach a certain point. No one ever wants you to feel full, (laughs) right? I want you to keep eating. I want you to buy more cars. You bought an iPhone last year. I want you to buy another one this year, right? Like, and balance is kind of antithetical, but, but the, there's a biological uh, metaphor I keep coming back to, which is one of the things I learned, this is benefits of being married to a neuropsychologist. One of the things I learned about cancer is a concept called angiogenesis. Angiogenesis is one of the most horrible yet badass things that cancer does. Certain kinds of cancer will actually send out signals uh, and make it so that blood vessels that were formerly going to useful organs will redirect <laughs> and now go to the cancer <laughs> or it will form new blood vessels to feed itself. And I can't help but think of Walmart, Google, Facebook, oil, banks, any company that goes to the government and lobbies for changes to the operating code of the country that will benefit them and basically get blood flow that might have been going to the environment and make it, you know what, it's better if it goes to us. And to me, like that notion, and and then a a cancer's mission is simple. Get bigger. (laughs) Have more cells. And I think about that mission statement versus the mission statement of every other organ in the body, which is do my job, keep us alive, work in harmony with all the other parts of the body. Yeah. And if you take that metaphor to like everything, but we're talking about business today, uh, you know, we look at this growth at all costs and growth for growth sake mission that we put businesses on and especially the venture funded end of the spectrum, like, there's a reason it looks like cancer because it is like, if you think of cancer as a design pattern rather than a biological system, mm-hmm. we've engineered economic cancer, which is terrifying, but it also, pro- I think it also like proves out when you start thinking about how the secondary and tertiary effects of that economic cancer of venture funded businesses affect the rest of the economy, Right a business that never touches venture funded money likely buys buys or uses products or services that are venture funded and what happens there is they're going to because of the economic forces choose the free or cheap version rather than the paid version and now we get into the area where we're trading you know privacy security data and all those kinds of things for $10 a month for an email account right thankfully there's a the beginnings of a movement where businesses go, no, I'm willing to pay 10. Can I pay 20? And value that privacy because they're realizing what they gave, what they were giving up all along. But we are so, so early in that movement and the forces are so strong that I, I think it's going to take more than, than just the same 
cultural narratives that got us to this mess to get yeah. us out. Like we need to use the same tools that got us here to get out, but we're going to need more. Uh, and, and back to your point about working in harmony, I feel, I, th- I think about, you know, the difference between the way people view business now and like the notion of, I mean, one of the things that like, this is like, this probably is the most illustrative part of my core ethos of business is the phrase. It's just business when it comes to, you know, doing something ethical or not, just be like, when I do something that is not in a mutual best interest, but only in mine and not in yours. And somebody goes, it's just business. I go, no, it's not like we're humans first. And the fact that that is, is a mechanism enough to be, you know, a, a meme or a trope is frustrating to me. Whereas if we, we have a situation where people start looking at business and business culture, like it was a couple hundred years ago, where instead of going to a grocery store or a restaurant, you went to a market or a bazaar and you bought meat from your meat vendor. You bought your cheese from your cheese vendor. You brought your bread from your bread vendor. Each of them get a little slice if they take home and support their families. Meanwhile, I get to make a badass sandwich and I know a little bit about where all my, like, and, and I think this is a, you know, a bit of an, um, a, a nod or a nudge in the direction of localism. I think there is, back to your point about balance, localism and globalism both can be in balance. I also think they have the potential to create like really interesting harmonies that we haven't fully explored. Like how do I be a global citizen and contribute to a global economy while still creating a sense of priority on my local community? Can that be done? Of course it can be done but not while Amazon has unchecked power to strip out, you know, the built-in incentives that I have to shop local. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, 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 and in terms of like the hole we're digging out of, I mean, let's just, let's just face facts, right? Part of the reason we skew towards uh, efficiency over human value is uh, that the vast amount of the wealth this country was built on was built off of theft, theft of land and theft of humans, right? Nobody wanted to pay for shit. They didn't want to pay for the land. They didn't want to pay for the labor. <laughs> and so people got used to the idea of, oh, and, and, you know, extending to the North as well, where remember, like slavery was a business, which meant people were investing and making capital and buying debt and doing all the things you do with Google and Amazon and all the other stocks and bonds that are out there, right? So all of it was how much money can I make without paying anything? (laughs) It was people trying to get away without paying for shit. And so you can see how (laughs) America is a get rich quick. Are you you saying America is a get rich quick scheme? A little bit, a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) You're not wrong. Right? Right? So digging out of that hole after you've been doing it for 400 years is hard. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so true. So, so true. But, but I think that, you know, again, trying to carve out what does ethical capitalism look like? I think one of the things that it looks like is pay for your shit. <laughs> totally. And I think, you know, a, a piece of that becomes like learning how to make stuff again. Yeah. Like the, that's, that's something where, you know, I've brushed up against the business world many times as a, as a person with creative skills and I feel like this comes up as a theme among people who are, you know, we could categorize as 21st century craftsmen and women, right? They're the blacksmiths and candle makers and bakers of, of today. We still have those people, but now we have that, that, that element of craft. I feel like that's a part of, you know, the, the, the community that we're a part of are, are the folks who are those craftspeople when it comes to technology, design, user experience, and software, but also communication, marketing, and so on and so forth. I think, I think, um, the, what I've brushed up against is when people who don't have those creative skills are in business, I can't help but look at them and go, what do you do? But be here to extract. And I know that's not always true. And I know that's not, not always fair, but I think it's a perspective that a lot of creative people have. And it's why a lot of creative people don't get into the business part of business because all they see in business are people who only do the business and don't do the making. They go, well, I don't want to be that kind of slime ball instead of looking at it from the perspective of I own the means of production. And if I add to that, the ability to make money, huh? Now we can, now, now, now I can, I can win on both fronts. Hmm. Interesting. 
And the flip side of that is, is the people who are good at the business skills to like learn one of the things that you normally hire people to do. You don't have to make that your entire career, but be, be capable of, of, you know, making a thing. Um, I feel like, you know, for, for a lot of folks, it's relegated to like one specific category and often never anywhere near their work. None of this is an antidote, by the way, but it's just sort of this, this broader observation of these two worlds appear at odds with each other when in fact they are just like the missing pieces of each other, which is, you know, what, what love story doesn't start that way. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so capitalism and art meet cute. <laughs> so, so I think that, but I think it leads us to it because something I've been thinking about a lot and I'll, I'll road test this with you for a sec, but yeah. I think a lot about the difference between speculation-based capitalism and value-based capitalism. And what I mean is there's uh-huh. money you make when you want a chicken, I've got a chicken, I give you the chicken, you give me money, the end, right? Then there's how much I, I want to buy a hundred chickens. So I'm going to ask this guy for a loan someone else is going to look at that loan and say, I bet you $100 he isn't able to pay it back. So now he's going to speculate on top of that. And then someone else will say, well, I bet you that that company is going to make another $10. So I'm going to invest in, you know, and you can see piling. And and there's really horrible graphs that show you how much money in this country is made from actual exchange of real value versus how much money is made on money and transactions of money and financial instruments, quote unquote. And it's, a, a million to one <laughs> ratio. <Yep. laughs> so what does this, what does, what does capitalism look like if it's actually just, you want a chicken, here's a chicken versus um, how much you want to bet that 10 chickens from now he's made this much money? <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is where I, among the reasons I've struggled with the, the investor driven side of the business world is, the vast majority of it is speculation. It's all speculation. Yeah, and you know, even even participating in the stock market feels weird because, as we're seeing today, the stock market is not a representative measure of the economy, for hopefully obvious reasons. Uh, if anything, the fact that it's growing the way that it's growing, I think is is only illustrative of exactly the point that you made. Is it takes a certain amount of capital to participate in that system. And therefore, that system is designed for speculators as an in-game, right? And it's designed to not just grow, but to grow in a way that keeps the people who aren't already in out. And even the design choices around all the weird language that happens in the stock market, you know, puts and calls and, you know, log into a stock ticker and try to understand it without somebody telling you what it is. That's not an accident, right? Right. Talk about design choices. Oh yeah. So so yeah. I mean, I think you, you have to look at every piece of the system where where the where the people who are already wealthy play to speculate and turn their money into more money. And again, this is not to say I have anything against investing as a mechanism, but to your point, when it gets so many layers abstracted away from the exchange of value, I mean, I think we kind of have to expect it to turn into a mutant. You know, when it, when it, when there's, there, there's, there's, it's so many layers of separation. There's no there there anymore. What's rooted it to reality at this point? Literally nothing. So, yeah, of course it's going to get weird. And then, you know, if it's run by the people who already have the power and the money, it's going to get weird in their favor. And I, th- and I think that there's, I mean, there's, there's literally research to point to the idea that um, there's an experiment where you basically give people the opportunity to cheat. Um, uh, I think it's like cheat on a test or something. And it's one situation where there's like a literal cash reward for whatever the experiment is. And another where it's sort of like tokens and the people who are dealing with the tokens are more likely to cheat. The more you abstract away yep. from actual cash, actual physical tender, the more people are willing to cheat. And what is more abstract in the stock market? <laughs> right. I mean, there's the, the, that's where, the for me, the, the line between the stock market and going to a casino look exactly the same. As I'm, yeah. I'm, I, I trade in my cash for chips or I trade in my cash for shares. It's the same thing. And it's, and it's the other part about it, and this goes back to like the armchair quarterbacking thing, mm-hmm. it's making bets on things that I have no control over the outcome of. Unless I'm intentionally manipulating the system, which means I either am doing something that is 
is or should be against the rules, or the rules that allow me to manipulate it are set up so that only people like me who already have the power can manipulate them. And that's where things like shorting and puts and calls and all those kinds of things come into play is like, yeah, those are designed to, to let you manipulate the system in that way. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, again, it all comes back to if you start there, and this is where I, I get scared about, you know, uh, this year we're hearing about what well, everybody's sitting at home and they got their stimulus check and they opened up a Robin Hood account on their phone and now they're goofing off on the stock market for the first time and making money, by the way, which good on them, right? Mm-hmm. But they don't, but if they do that without the fund, un, fundamental understanding of economics of the businesses that they're trading on, mm-hmm. we're going to end up in a pretty terrible place, somehow even worse than the place we already are. Because we've got people whose entire foundations of their relationship with money and their entire understanding of how money flows into their bank account and out of their bank account is driven by that speculative market. It becomes very hard. There are now no longer incentives for them to ground that in the business fundamentals of exchanging value and goods and services for money. Yeah, and there's definitely there's definitely a relationship to power there too, right? So I think one of one of the things to talk about um, in the book is sort of how incentivization follows the money, <laughs> and usually leads to bad outcomes. And you end up in situations where even if the system is broken, it's in no one's best interest to point it out. So I talk about this with like online advertising and how there's no real evidence <laughs> that an ad you used through like that, that was like you paid for on Google is performing better than just organic search because of a thing called selection effects. But it's certainly not in the interest of the person selling the ad to point mm-hmm. that out. And it's actually not in the interest of the person buying the ad if they're getting a big marketing budget to point yeah. that out. Yeah. Right. So everyone keeps up. My favorite like iteration of this is when you had the, um, uh, variation on a theme. You had uh, the whole TikTok thing where TikTok folks managed to trick, you know, the uh, Trump rally into thinking more people were going to show up than actually did. And someone was pointing out the actual mechanics of that trick were easy to spot, right? This was not some clever hack. This was pretty, take five minutes, it's pretty obvious what's happening. But they also pointed out that it was in no one's best interest to tell Trump he wasn't going to, that these, that these numbers were inflated, because Trump created an incentivization where the only thing that matters is his success and any and, and loyalty is the only thing that matters, right? And, so, and, and also he can lie his way out of whatever the numbers say, you know, whatever the numbers are, he'll say, say what he thinks they are. Exactly. And so it's in no one's, even if they did spot that this was all inflated, it was in no one's best interest to tell him that. It was in no one's best interest to say it, say it to anyone, right? So it incentivizes, thinking, thinking that way, incentivizes, to your point, a lot of like, well, if I'm not making money off of an actual exchange of value, I have every reason in the world, now that we're just living in the land of make-believe, <laughs> to just make-believe. And I think that's where... Amy has a really great blog post. I'll, I'll link to this in the chat as well. It's called Why Blacksmiths Are Better at Startups Than You Are. And the, the gist is, well, the story of this, of this article comes from watching an episode of a show called Mastercraft. So it's a BBC show. And it's sort of like a reality competition. It's like it's, Brit- like it's British Bake Off, but with blacksmiths. We'll call it what it is. And while she's watching this, she's realizing the sort of character archetypes of the the players of this show, um, the similarities and differences between the players of the sh- of a, if a similar show existed following startup founders, right? And the the big difference between the people who succeed and fail are the people who are less disambiguated from reality, hmm. right? So we live in a world where we live through one or more layers of disambiguation. Everything we're talking about money and capitalism is just one example. Our version of capitalism is layers and depending on who you are and how you interact with it, more and more and more layers deep disambiguated from that initial core exchange of goods or services for money. But you can look at anything that's happening in the world, but let's for the for the moment we'll look at America. Everything that's happening in America right now that is that 
to a person who is grounded in reality looks completely insane is because the people who are doing and saying the apparently insane things are many layers disambiguated from reality, right? It's who they have contact with. It's where they have contact with those people. It's what information and sources, like the more layers there are, the easier it is to get unhooked from reality and to, and, 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 to lose it to maybe the point where you don't get it back. And that's, that's scary. So, you know, the question here, or maybe there's two is like, how do we as people and how do we as designers of these systems make sure that we're designing systems that don't systematically unhook people from reality by progressively disambiguating them from the things that actually matter. Let's do, let's, let's stop the boat from leaking. Right. And then also have a conversation about, you know, what do we do about the folks in the boats that sank? Uh, and I know you've said this a bunch of times, you know, on, on this podcast and, and surrounding your book is like, whatever happens on November 3rd, we still have a large portion of America that voted for Trump the first time and is going to vote again. What do we do about that? Uh, and it's funny, like, as you're, as you're talking, this idea started like forming in my head of like, oh, I think we, unfortunately, I think we might have to start inviting them to design sprints. So, <laughs> so the reason I said it, cause a lot of what you're talking about, right? Like that checking in with reality. Cause I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think about things like, for example, it's common farming practice. You need to let fields lie fallow. And before you can plant again, there's a lot of things that go along with that. And that is like hard one from folks who worked the land. And if the, land didn't produce, they were on the hook. And then you look at at modern farming practices, which are more about like, just plant as much as you can and just, you know, completely destroy the land. And don't worry, we've got, we've got enough that it doesn't matter. Right. Where you, and and that is being divorced from consequences, right? I can do all these things and never have to feel the consequences. And it results in very destructive behavior. It's easier to, to, to engage in destructive behavior when you're not in touch with that. So I think about like, and we, we were recently, we were just on a call kind of sort of about like reaching out to, for one organization to reach out to more communities. And one of the things that like really stuck in my head is this notion of wherever you live, whatever the median income is, right? I want you to ask yourself, how many people living under that did you talk to in the design of this product, in this policy decision, in whatever that thing is? I will bet you dollars to donuts. You have not talked to, you have probably not run into one person in this week who yeah. lives below that median. And in Philadelphia, it's $27,000 per capita, you know, per capita, like income. I can guarantee you in the past two, three weeks, I don't think I've, I, I had five words with anyone who made less than $27,000. Okay. I am divorced from reality. And I think most of us are. Yeah, no, totally true. Uh, this reference wouldn't make sense on any other podcast except for this one, but I know your love of media. Rewatching the show Dinosaurs from the 90s, mm. the Jim Henson Muppets one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep getting some nods. A, that show was ahead of its time in a lot of ways. Like the topics that it covered were really, really smart and like very, very poignant how they did it. And there was an episode that I, I uh, what you were saying about the, but there's always more conversation <laughs> there's an episode about this where mm. um for the the for those who don't know the show the there's it's sort of like a nuclear family of dinosaurs in like a you know 60s to 80s sitcom format and the husband and wife it's their anniversary and so for their anniversary earl the husband goes and gets this delicacy of a food called a graptolite and in this world they're dinosaurs and so the graptolites are alive right this is they're gonna eat the live food and these grapholites are sitting on the counter at home waiting to be eaten for anniversary dinner. And Robbie, the teenage son, comes home with a homework assignment from the teacher. And the question is, why do dinosaurs rule the earth? And Robbie's like, because we're big. And the grapholites are like, well, that's not a, not a really good answer. Like, or, why do you think that's a good answer? And he ends up in this kind of like, like conceptual, like bordering on theological debate with, with dinner, right? And he gives this metaphor, or, uh, give this, or rather the graptolites give Robbie the metaphor of a bunch of grapes. And they say, okay, let's say these grapes are all the grapes that are left in the world. And Robbie's like, okay, cool. And they're like, you're hungry. You want to eat grapes. And Robbie's like, okay. And he eats the grapes, eats the grapes. And they go, now let's say you want grapes tomorrow. 
And Robbie's like, well, just go to the store and get more grapes. And I said, well, that's not possible because those were the last grapes in the world and you ate them. And Robbie's like, I don't understand. There's always more. And they're like, we're the last two graptolites on earth. If your parents eat us tonight, our species dies out. Existential crisis. That's how this show works. It's really wow. good. And it, but I mean, what's, what's amazing about it is Robbie then takes that essay that he writes based on the lesson from the graptolites to his teacher, explains the grape metaphor. And the teacher's like, F, there will always be more grapes. And I think wow. the story here is the people who are in the positions of authority that we look up to live in this dominant world where there's always going to be more grapes. And that was the story that was told by this episode of Dinosaurs. It was really good and very relevant, somehow extraordinarily relevant yeah. to today's conversation. Well, it's, it's, it's an eternal theme. Um, I think that is as, as good and dystopic a note to end on. Um, <laughs> I, I could talk to you for hours more and I'm sure we will. Uh, but um, thank you everyone for joining I also want to point out that Mike typed into the chat chicken shorting, <laughs> referencing our earlier conversation, which I thought is fantastic. Um, thank you all for coming. Thank you, Alex. Um, our, our next guest, if you want to, want to tune in for the next one, is Eileen Webb. We're, we're going to talk about ableism. And actually, Alex, a lot of the things we talked about today are going to come back on that. Um, Alex, any final words before we uh, tune out? Well, I know uh, folks heard me talking a little bit about the Tiny MBA. First of all, if for some reason you haven't bought Dave's book yet, what are you even doing? Go get a copy of Dave's book, sit down and read it. It's amazing. Um, but I've got one to promote as well. Uh, the Tiny MBA, we talked a little bit about some of the lessons around trust and the the idea that you know, bigger isn't better, but better is better. Those are themes through the 100 lessons in the book. Um, a lot of the individual lessons tie back to those things. So if this is the kind of stuff that you're interested in, in your business or career or industry, uh, the book is probably worth checking out. You can get a copy at tiny.mba, super short URL. And uh, I'll actually set up a discount code bias for anyone who listens to the show to grab, uh, grab the book for 20% off, uh, available in paperback as well as digital. And when you buy the paperback, you get a copy of the digital right away. So you can start reading it immediately while you're waiting for your book to be delivered. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alex. For the Cognitive Bias Podcast, I'm David Dolan Thomas. We will see you next time.